Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. So, Jeff and I are currently sitting down here with Tu Lee. As I was telling Tu before, I'm a little bit starstruck that she's here, um, but we are so excited to have her on the show. If you don't know, Tu Lee is a community worker, advocate and organiser. She currently works in the community legal sector, assisting victim survivors of domestic and family violence and coordinating capacity building and community legal education programs. Previously, she's also served as the General Secretary of the Vietnamese Community in Australia and New South Wales. And throughout her entire work, Tu has always been committed to fighting for greater diversity and justice in Australian society and politics. Tu, that is a range of accolades that I feel like I'm so impressed by. How are you going? It's so nice to see you. <laughs> Hi, Isabella and Jeffrey. Um, really well, thank you. It's a really nice day here in Sydney. Um, we've been having really cold weather, so the sun's out today. So I've been really happy to take my dogs out for a walk. Yeah, Likewise. I know. It's like fourth day of winter and I'm over it already. I'm so concerned about this year. Like, this <laughs> and heating. Oh, it's so much colder in Victoria too. <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. And, you know, I think the big reason why we wanted to have to today on the podcast is just to honestly do a bit of post-mortem on this recent election and just to discuss politics and Australian society in general. So, two, now that the election period is largely over, give us your thoughts on how the last few months have been for you. I feel like as someone who has kind of been through this process before, I'd love to hear kind of your first-hand experience on what it's been like, you know, on the front lines, so to speak. Well, the election itself was extremely interesting. I think not everyone expected the result we had. I think coming off the back of 2019 and it was sort of labelled the unlosable election for Labor. Um, So full disclosure, I'm a Labor Party member and um, most of your listeners may know that I sought to uh, be pre-selected for the seat of Fowler, which is in southwest of Sydney. It is a very diverse seat, but there's about... 14% of the population in Fowler that are of Vietnamese heritage. So it is lots of very diverse seat. It does encompass suburbs, including Karamata, Cantleyvale, Bonnerate. So um, you may have heard of those suburbs where it it is largely Vietnamese. Um, And so from, I think it was August last year when Christina Keneally had been parachuted into seat, I wouldn't say that my life flipped upside down. I, I think it was something that was a surprise to me. So I had found out about Christina Keneally being parachuted in from the media, actually. I had no idea. Oh, wow. No, at that point in time. Really? Yeah, so I wasn't told about it. And at that point in time, I had put my hand up for pre-selection, which just meant that I wanted to throw my hat in the ring. Usually for a pre-selection process, and not many people who aren't necessarily involved in a Um, political party would know this but before you actually become a candidate there's a pre-selection process and the usual selection given we're a democracy is that local members we call them rank and file members get to vote so there's a ballot you win the majority vote and you become the candidate within the rules of parties there are certain exceptions to that where it essentially allows head office or a lot of people will see them as the faceless men to then make decisions that circumvent the rank and file vote. So this is what happened in this instance. And it happens all the time on both sides of politics. People might have heard about how ScoMo, our former prime minister, won his seat. So they actually had a pre-selection rank and file vote. Um, He actually lost to a local person within the community in Cook, which is his seat in South Sydney. And I think my he lost like 80 votes to eight or something like that. Like it was a landslide. He totally missed out. But then you might have heard it resurfaced recently, actually. So this happened about 15 years ago when he first entered politics. But it resurfaced recently where then he went around saying that 
the pre-selected candidate that actually won the ballot, he was spreading rumours that he was a Muslim. So this man is a a Lebanese-Australian man, Michael Tote, and the electorate of Cook, where Scott Morrison is the member, includes the suburb of Cronulla. So at that time, there were the Cronulla riots, if you guys Mm. remember that. And so it was a really tentious um, period of time. And so he thought that, you know, having someone of Lebanese background supposedly of Muslim faith, which he isn't, um, represent the area would be really problematic and divisive. Um, So he managed to convince them somehow, but he then became the member. So with pre-selection processes within parties, it is something that um, is quite internal to parties and not many people know about it. So all you are presented with as a community is the candidate that the party puts Mm. up. Um, So Mm. in this case, they put up Christina Keneally, and I think there was a lot of outrage around that because she wasn't from the local community. She lived on an island um, about 60 k's away. Uh, I think there were a couple of things about how long it takes her to get here, which is about three and a half hours by public transport. She has to take a bus and then a boat and then I don't know how many train um, she has to change to get there. But it was just a really clear, I think, insult. I think the community felt insulted that they would just impose someone, whoever they thought or whoever they wanted, onto the community. And so the community actually responded by outrightly rejecting that. So the last few months has been extremely interesting. I mean, for me personally, I think I've achieved a lot of personal milestones. So I... I was finally able to get married after two years of COVID. Oh, Our wedding was postponed for two, yeah, for two <laughs> years, which was insane. We had, I think, six different wedding dates. <laughs> My dog had puppies. We bought our first oh, property. So there's a lot of happening. There was a lot happening personally um, that I'm really proud of in terms of like milestones reaching this stage in my life. But the whole like politics, that was a real learning curve for me too. I think it was yeah. – Something I took in stride, um, as I mentioned, it kind of just happened um, overnight. And I, I often say too, like I feel like, of course, it was a setback for my own, I guess, political career or ambition. But if it wasn't for Christina Keneally, the former senator, she was his deputy in the Senate, very high profile. If it wasn't for a high profile, I don't think that I would be given the platform that I had. Yeah. And so it, while it's been a, a setback, it's actually been such a huge opportunity for me like I've been on the drum a few times there's been a lot of media interest around it and so I've just really leveraged off that to be able to raise the issues that I think are important and talk about things like representation like the importance of diversity um, not only within politics but across all industries and I think that's really important and representation is really important so I think it's been quite a positive experience even though it's you know people think oh you've missed out or whatever it is um and you know you often hear that you've got time you're young wait your turn and all that I think people say a lot of these things to sort of quash the ambitions of young people Mm -hmm. um but overall Mm -hmm. I think it's been a a really positive experience and I've I've learned quite a lot over the last few months Oh, wow. That's absolutely fantastic. And, you know, I I think to your point about representation, I mean, that's something I think we really want to canvas in this episode. But, you know, just briefly, I I think just given like the results from like this election with that seat, right, like the vindication of having Daly, you know, essentially kick out, um, kick out, is that the right word to use? I don't know if that's too, no, I think kick out is the right (laughs) word. Um, Christina Keneally, you know, did that feel like some sort of vindication that, you know, you have the community being able to, you know, use their voice and vote someone in who actually represents them, you know? Yeah, I mean, I think Fowler, and most people might know that it was one of the safest seats for Labor in the country. Since the seat was created, it's always been held by the Labor Party and a Labor member. Um, So when something like that happens, it's a rude shock to the voting pattern because most people rely on, you know, how people vote in the past. And and I think that was the decision that was made. And so I think here in this scenario, it was just really poor judgment by the Labor Party to think that they could do something like that, parachute a candidate, whoever it could be, into a safe seat and think that it'd be okay and that the community would just have to deal with it and accept it. Um, So I, I think in this case, the community clearly sent a message that Mm. you can't do this and we're not going to accept that and you can't take us for granted because it it clearly in this case that's what happened 
the Labor Party, and this happens on both sides in, you know, in different seats, but in this case in Fowler, the Labor Party had taken the community for granted, thinking that they'll vote for anyone that they put up. And I, I think that there was a risk involved um, and the party left ourselves, you know, quite vulnerable and a very strong local candidate who is a deputy mayor saw that opportunity and capitalised on it and won. And so I, I think there was a sense that the party would be punished for this decision in terms of parachuting Christina Keneally, but I don't think they thought that they'd actually lose the seat. And I don't mm. think anyone yeah, thought that right. they'd actually lose the seat, but they yeah. did. And it probably yeah. was a surprise yeah. to Dai Lee too that she won, um, but she did. And you know, we have to respect democratic processes. And I think overall like, we're so fortunate that the people have that power to vote. And I think that's the, probably the biggest win out of all this is that the community can see the power of their vote because in the past I think most people are just like, oh, it's either Labor going to win or Liberal going to win anyway. Why does it matter? Um, in Fowler, in a lot of areas too where there are high populations of you know migrant communities, the percentage of informal votes, so you know, things like donkey votes or people either intentionally voting incorrectly or not knowing how to properly vote because in the federal election you have to label all boxes, uh, which is for us in New South Wales different to our state ballot so Mm. that's really confusing for people so for whatever reason it is um, there's a really high number of informal votes like around 10 to 15 percent of the population don't vote correctly which is huge because their vote doesn't count and so I I think overall I mean you would have seen Fowler in the news during the election period which you never see a safe seat you'll never see the leader of a party actually go to the seat because you know, why would they waste their time on a safe seat when they need to be campaigning in marginal seats? So I think overall, the community really saw it as a win, is that, you know, people are actually paying attention to our area. Because I think that's the downside of being a so-called safe seat is that the incumbent or the party that always wins that seat just assumes that they'll, they'll always win. So they don't really care too much in the sense that they weren't investing much, they weren't campaigning as hard in that area as opposed to marginal seats. And so you have in marginal seats, you'll see parties are promising all sorts of things to the local community to try to win their votes. And then you get the opposite where the opposition or the other parties will then also not invest in that area because they think they'll never win. Um, so I, I think that at the end of the day, it's really the community that have won um, and have triumphed over this. And they think they've sent a really clear message and parties now have to really learn the lesson from this is that you can't take communities for granted and that politics is is local and you have to actually care about what local people are saying and actually listen to what they're they're saying and what they are trying to champion uh, within their communities. 100%. Well, I mean, Isabella and I had a similar situation, you know, Cedar Kuyong has been a liberal seat forever, right? And this time around, Monique, absolutely just shot it out of the park. See you later, Frydenberg. The campaigning over the last few months was insane, like absolutely insane. There was so many articles around like, oh, I can't remember what Frydenberg's like marketing spend was. It was like two, $3 million. Just every street corner was just massive billboards of him. He hired cars that drove around the streets with massive billboards. He paid people to walk up and down um, our road, Glenferry Road, which is sort of like the main strip um, for the seat of Kuyong. And just like these teenage kids carrying signs twice their size, just like sticking above their heads, just saying like, vote for Frydenberg. And it was insane. We got, did you get that letter from John Howard, Isabel? Yes. We got letters from like John Howard saying vote for Frydenberg. Pulling all the big guns. Yeah, exactly. But obviously like the people have spoken, right? I think there was something really strong about the message that people of Kuyong have sent like lives. It's that like, you just don't listen anymore. Like we don't care about your policies. Like we want to go with this independent candidate. And I think it's an awesome change. And, you know, it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next three years. Um, Keen to hear your thoughts on that actually too. Like, what are you looking into the crystal ball? Like think is going to happen over the next three years. Oh, I think overall there seemed to be a sense of relief mm. <laughs> um, by the election yeah, result. Big time. Big time. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and you're you're right. I think there's a sense of the government's not listening. We've been telling them about what we think is important as communities, and right, no matter where you live to, I think overall, like climate action, and and I, I tend to think or hear that 
And I've heard candidates in my local area say, you know, this is a low socioeconomic area. You know, people don't care about climate change or climate action. But I find that so wrong and, you know, somewhat patronising to think that people are too poor to care about the future and Mm. about climate change. Because we can see it like in terms of the temperature rises in the West, a lot of things, energy prices. Um, So I find it quite condescending and patronising to hear that. Um, So obviously, you know, climate action was a huge campaign issue where we've seen a lack of action on climate for the last nine years of the previous government. Integrity is a huge thing mm. around, you know, not having an ICAC or an independent integrity commission. And then also to around the issue of women. And I think particularly in the last two years of the pandemic, like that just exasperated the the issue for women who are often the centre of a lot of the, the care economy. So childcare, um, around education, even the healthcare system that was just on the brink of breaking because of COVID. And obviously a lot around the treatment of women, not only in parliament, but overall as well and how the previous government had dealt with that. So I'm really hopeful for the future. Yeah. I mean, not to be biased mm. as a, you know, a Labor person, um, but I, I think having the cross bench that we do and the teal representation, I think that sort of gives people an alternative and more hope because they know that, you know, it's not just Labor or Liberal and whilst you know, I am a liberal, a Labor Party member, sorry. I think that that gives people more to be hopeful for because I think a lot of people get turned off by the two-party system that we have. And I know around me, the conversations I hear, they think like it doesn't matter if it's a Labor or Liberal government, like nothing's going to change. It's all the same corrupt people. And even if they aren't corrupt, like that's just what people view politicians as. I think there's a real lack of trust of politicians and everything that comes out of a politician's mouth, people are just like rolling their eyes. But I think having independence um, on the cross bench and seeing that these people are championing local issues and actually listening. I think like the art of politics is about like listening to your communities and what is important to them and then championing and advocating for those issues. Um, but I think, you know, a lot of it now people view as just a vested interest and they don't actually care about people. And a lot of people are career politicians. So, you know, they just, and, and they see that. I think they saw that through what happened in Fowler. Christina Keneally, if your listeners don't know, it was because, so she was a senator and it was because she couldn't secure the top position on the Senate ticket um, and because of factional issues. She couldn't win the number one spot, so she was relegated to the third spot, and that's pretty much an unwinnable spot. So to save her own career, she moved to the lower house, and she probably thought with the support of certain people that Fowler is a a really safe seat, so she didn't have to work as hard. She still win it. She could focus more on, you know, being a minister and on Canberra rather than the local community, and they'll always just vote for her. And that decision ultimately backfired massively, like, I think that it's a huge loss to the Labor Party to have lost a safe seat, but also lose a pretty brilliant politician in Christina Keneally. Um, So it's a really hard lesson, but it's one I think that if it didn't happen, we may think that it's okay to keep doing that and parties just take communities for granted, as I mentioned. Um, So it's a huge lesson to learn and I really do hope they take note, but I don't know, sometimes in politics it feels like people have very short memories and keep (laughs) making the same mistakes over and over. Yeah, fingers crossed, fingers crossed. Um, We want to backtrack a little bit. Um, We'd love to hear sort of what was that moment that inspired you to enter politics and you sort of talked about your political ambition. We'd also love to hear like what's next. You know, like, what's the plan? Yeah, I, I don't think there was a particular moment. Like, I never grew up in a household where we spoke about politics at the dinner table or anything like that. Um, I think it was probably more a series of moments or incidents that led me to even consider a career in politics. Um, and so there were a couple of things. Like, I think my personal interests and I guess, commitment to my community was a huge driving factor. I've always been very community-driven. I've had a very strong service disposition from a young age. And I think that comes from 
uh, my involvement within my community as a Buddhist as well. So I'm part of the Buddhist community here in Sydney, and that's always been a big part of my life. And also being involved in community organising, which is really around building local people power around common problems that were important to the local community, and then trying to advocate for those issues to be solved for the common good. So things around climate action, childcare for for migrant workers during the pandemic too, a lot of people who were on temporary visas, like international students and other temporary visa holders had absolutely no assistance from the government. Our then prime minister was pretty much, oh, you know, we'll take your money when times are good, but, you know, we're in a pandemic now, so you can all leave and go home and we're not going to give you any support. Um, so I did a lot of organising around those issues and assisting international students. So I, I think it's um, a bit of, like, my own personal passion for my community and serving my community. And on the other side of that too, I, I think it was really the mentorship and sponsorship I had, and I think that that was critical. And I always say, you know, without an old old white man giving me a a leg up essentially like I wouldn't be in the position that I am and I probably wouldn't even consider like that politics was actually a viable career option because it was just so Mm. inaccessible for women of young women of color you don't see yourself represented in politics I think before this election about four percent of our federal parliament were non-European or Anglo. Uh, And so I think when these types of institutions and they're represented by a particular class, and like to be fair, you know, you used to look around and majority of people you see in parliament are all middle-aged white men who come from very similar backgrounds. And it's just very difficult to sort of break into that. Um, So I was very privileged to actually have um, a mentor and a, a sponsor in the outgoing member. And if it wasn't for him saying, this is a person I support, I don't think I'd be where I was mm. at all. Um, mm. I, I really yeah. do believe that. And so that's super important, I think, across any industry or, or workplace to have that type of support and sponsorship to really get you there. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I think it's one thing to have that representation, which obviously is crucial, right? Like you want to see someone like yourself represented in something you want to do. But I think what's often left out of the conversation is also the importance of allyship and, like you said, sponsorship and mentorship. And it's the people in those positions of power who can actually help you get there. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm so glad to hear that, like, your journey has been shaped by all these different influences, um, notwithstanding the allyship. So, yeah, that's amazing to hear. And, you know, I know we discussed briefly before about the seat of Fowler, but I just kind of want to unpack a little bit on that. I mean, I, I kind of just love to hear your thought process and how you just felt during that whole contest like I think there was so much I remember reading about it like there was so much intense media scrutiny like how did you navigate that especially given this is your I mean correct me if I'm wrong like first foray into contesting for a seat like how was that whole process for you well knowing that you know fellow was a safe seat I knew that if I were the candidate that it was very probable that I would have won So I knew that the pre-selection process, it wasn't going to be easy because everyone's going to want to contest a seat. And I think I would have preferred a competitive pre-selection process because I think that that would have given me an opportunity to really prove myself to my local community um, and, you know, let them know what I stand for and listen to what they want in me as a representative. But I didn't even get that opportunity when Christina Keneally was parachuted in. So I I mentioned earlier that I had found out really from the media, I think I I got a phone call the night before and they're like, tomorrow there's all this stuff that's going to come out. Don't be shocked, but there's nothing that you can do about it. It's actually really bizarre. So there's factions within parties and so I'm on the right faction and so I usually attend these factional meetings and then I was left out of the invitation to a meeting on that Friday so I think on Thursday was when my phone just like went off I didn't even know how all these journalists and reporters got my number um, but they did and so I was contacted by absolutely every media outlet to talk about this issue of Christina Keneally being parachuted into Fowler 
Um, so it, it all just happened at once. And on the Friday day after was when we were supposed to have a factional meeting. And I was told that it was an oversight that I didn't get invited, but that's where they had endorsed Keneally. And there were people in the community who were like, yeah, we support her. And then it was a done deal. So I don't think it was an oversight. I, they obviously had deliberately not invited me and left me out of the invitation to attend the meeting. But it was just, I, I didn't even have time to think. It was really overwhelming. And I, I did accept at that point in time, I was meeting to so have a local dog park. So they're like, we'll come to you. So I was just like, okay, I'll just meet you at the local dog park. I'll just use that as an opportunity to take my dogs out for a walk as well. Um, and so, yeah, I just met all these reporters in the dog park and they just asked me all these questions. <laughs> and, you know, I had no prior like formal media training at mm. all. Mm. Um, so it was intense, but I just, uh, my only response was the truth, right, and my truth and how I felt about the situation. And it didn't really occur to me to to say no to the media because they just asked me, you know, like, what's going on? What's your opinion? And I answered it honestly. And I told them how I felt. And then I didn't realize that afterwards and everyone was just like within the party, like, why would you do that? You know, most people just stay quiet, shut up and let this blow over and so the issue can go away. And I'm like, how can I do that? This is so yeah, wrong. Yeah. Like, it just, it looks yeah, bad, yeah. the optics of it. To the, the average person, they just see a very privileged, you know, white woman come into this seat in southwest Sydney that is super diverse and then come in and say, this is my community now and I'm going to represent you. And I think to a lot of local people, they were just like, why would you do that? Like, you don't really represent us. We know why you're here. And I think a lot of people were actually quite aware of why she was there um, because of the factional issues in the Senate. And so, you know, I had so many people within the community, both like Vietnamese and non-Vietnamese background, who will adjust to me like, you know, we feel like second-class citizens, like they don't care about us. Um, And then I think they really responded the way they did by throwing their support. And I, I think in this case, as I mentioned, like they took a risk, the party, in doing this. Like they knew there'd be some backlash. But in this case, you know, they really left themselves vulnerable to a very viable, strong local candidate. And that's what we had in Dai Li. Mm. Um, And she was able then on the back of her, you know, local reputation as a deputy mayor as well, win. So I don't think they really saw that coming. Um, So I think when she had announced she was running and I I think she made it clear, I I may be wrong, but I think she made it really clear that she wouldn't have run if they didn't have Christina Keneally there. But she just felt like there was so much backlash from the community that she had to step up and and run um, in the seat for Fowler. And so, yeah, that whole experience, I think I just took it one day at a time. As I mentioned, I didn't realise that the parties and people would normally just stay quiet. I thought that I couldn't stay quiet, Um, not only for me, but for my community. Like we had to speak up and that's what I did. And so I got into a lot of trouble for that too. (laughs) Um, But I wouldn't have changed it at all. And if that means it's the end of my political career, as some people have suggested to me, to dare to speak up about your own party, I honestly, you know, would not sacrifice my own values for what they would say towing the party line. I think it's so much more important for me to stand up for what I believe in. And of course, you know, if I don't agree with a decision, I can say that I shouldn't have to stay quiet or just agree, especially if it goes against my values and everything I stand for. I just got goosebumps. I respect that so much. And that's something I think is what we should see in politicians, right? Like I think a degree of earnesty, right? But also valuing the truth as well. And I just feel like that's something that I think has jaded a lot of people from politics, from civic engagement, like what you said before about, you know, people are so jaded by the idea that there are career politicians, that there are people who just do things because it benefits them and not the community. And it's so refreshing to see, you know, like you're in this position where you could have easily stayed quiet and you could have easily just let this blow over, but you didn't. And instead you like spoke up for what your values were, spoke up for the community. And yeah, I really respect that. And I think that's an amazing thing that you have done. Um, and thank you so much for sharing that like I can't imagine how challenging that must have been but at the same time like you said it's kind of led to where you are today and I think for that it's a good thing you know yeah I mean do you see this as almost like a catalyst for more political engagement in the future I feel like this particular election just engagement with the news understanding what policies each party had 
actually understanding or getting to know the voting process a little bit more, understanding what each candidate stood for. And obviously in the seat of Fowler, it sounds like the community really had a strong voice this time. Do you feel like this is actually quite a positive move um, into the future where people are actually learning that, you know, they have power, they can actually create change and they can actually influence the people that represent them? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I honestly think like if it took me you know, not contesting the seat of Fowler for us to incite that awareness and that interest in, or even that, you know, outrage and saying, you know, we are part of this country too as diverse communities and we should have a say and we need our parliament to be representative of the very diverse communities that make up Australia, um, then, yeah, I think that my experience, if had something to do with that or if it was somewhat a catalyst, and I'm really proud of that because I think it's so important and, and I think we're well overdue. Like our communities now, I think like a quarter of Australians were born overseas or have parents that were born overseas. Like our communities are so diverse and we always say, you know, what a great multicultural country we are. We are, but we look at our federal parliament and they're all, you know, middle-aged white men. Mm-hmm. And we live in a representative democracy. That's not representative at all of our communities. So I think it's, you know, it's due time. I, I think it's because I've been very involved in my Vietnamese, my local Vietnamese community in Southwest Sydney. And in, in my engagement, particularly with the older generation, I think it's somewhat a generational issue too, but within the Vietnamese community, and we haven't been here for that long. Most of the people that migrated here came after the war, which ended in 75. So it's been less than 50 years. So my generation, second generation Australian born, um, I think, you know, our lived experience is very different to our parents and and I think it's a very similar migrant experience actually it doesn't matter what background or where you came from but I think a lot of that first generation came here didn't want to stand out too much worked really hard but put their head down just try to get by and this uh, you know it was sort of drilled into me too you know we're so lucky to be in this country Um, Australia is a lucky country so we just have to be really grateful for what we have but I think our generation you know who grew up here we were taught to speak up we were taught that you know whenever you see something that's not right, like you've, you've got to be able to call it out. And we're part of the Australian community. But I feel in the first generation and the, when I work with that generation and, you know, the way in which they, they view themselves in our communities, it, it comes from a very, and I understand, you know, the trauma and, you know, what they've gone through and, you know, how different it is for them now to be able to live in a free country and live in a democracy. And I, I understand the gratitude But, you know, we are all Australians, but I see a lot of the first generation don't really see ourselves as true Australians. Uh, We still feel like we're guests in this country. So it's like we don't have a right to have a say in things like Australian politics. Um, We don't have a right to speak up for ourselves. And, you know, and and I see that in the engagement with politicians too. Like sometimes politicians come to me and they say, some things that I don't agree with, but the community just clap and cheer for them anyway. And there's almost this view that, you know, we serve politicians and we put them on this pedestal, but that's not right. Politicians serve us and they should be listening to us and what what we want. That's what they're in Canberra to do, to serve our interests and to represent our views and advocate for what's important to their community. Um, But yeah, for a lot of migrant communities, the dynamic and the relationship is different. And I think that really needs to shift. And I think it is shifting. And I think particularly with the most recent election results, like when you look now and you see the number of diverse Australians, people of colour, more women um, who are being sworn in, that just gives me so much hope for the future. And I think while progress is slow, um, there's still progress and that's that's a great thing. And I, I think that in future we're going to see more and more people. And I think what it means for young people to see that too, to see, you know, an Asian Australian in politics, like that's going to have a huge impact and it already is, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. You talked a lot about representation. Obviously, that's something that you care a lot about. Obviously, it is getting better. I think with this recent election, we are seeing more... Asian people in politics, which is, woo, love that. Uh, But overall, there's still an incredible lack of politics. And one of our writers, Clint, wrote an awesome piece about this, um, about why it is, what the statistics are. But we'll be keen to hear 
in your opinion, sort of what is driving this lack of Asian representation in politics? And, you know, we're hopeful that it's going to change, but what are some things that you think will actually just, you know, accelerate that change a little bit more as well? Yeah, well, I think a lot of it and, you know, just across the board, not just in politics, but for us to see more representation, it often means that people who hold currently hold that power, it means that they have to give up a bit of their power to make room for others. And, you know, people aren't always willing to do that. And so you see across the board in, in other areas as well, um, you always hear about, you know, people making it to the top, to exec positions and whatnot, and then they kind of shut the door behind them and they're like, you know, I'm here now, I made it, I worked my butt off, I jumped through hoops to get here. So everyone else that follows me has to work just as hard. Mm. Uh, but I, I don't believe in that at all. I think, you know, if, if you had to go through that and you know how difficult and challenging it is to be a woman, to be a person of colour, you know, to be Asian Australian, to get to where you are, you need to be able to pave the way for others. And I think sometimes, because when you get a seat at the table, and oftentimes you're the minority, right, as an Asian Australian, so you'd be that one Asian Australian, and you don't want to be the token as well, but oftentimes people also question your merit and how you got there and whether or not it's a tick in the box for the organisation or the institution to say, oh, you know, we are diverse, we have that one Asian Australian on our board or on our exec team or whatever it is. But I just think it's so important that if you get there, you've got to be able to pave the way and you've got to not only open the door for others, but just like knock the whole damn house down and, and let others who want to learn from you, you know, who look up to you to, to have that chance too. And we talked about allyship and, and sponsorship and mentorship, like those things are, are so important. So it really takes those trailblazers who get there. And it, it's interesting because I've spoken to a few politicians and even those who are Asian Australians, I feel like they don't want to talk too much and focus so much on their identity because then they feel like, you know, I'm here because, you know, I like on merit and I've worked really hard and I just happen to be, you know, Asian Australian. But I think we bring so much to this country as Asian Australians and identity is really important. And I've only really learnt that I think in the last few years that that my identity and being Asian Australian, um, I like to say is like my superpower. You know, mm. I bring so much more mm. in terms of my lived experience in terms of, you know, what my family had gone through to get here. Like that enriches our country and it should be something that should be celebrated, not something that we hide away to be more Australian. Like what does that even mean? Like being Australian doesn't mean white Australia. We're so diverse, but we still have this notion of Australia, like the real true Australia being a white Australians and we're just trying to fit in on the, you know, fringes of that. But like look around our community, it's changing. Um, and I really think it, it takes us as individuals to be really proud and to celebrate like our identity. And I don't think it means, you know, having to just because we live in, you know, Australia now to give up our, our history and our heritage. I think when you are able to appreciate and learn and, you know, we, we have the best of both. Like, being Aussies and being Asian, right? Like, that is so enriching for us individually as people, but also what that means for the communities and then for society. We can bring so much more to the table and I think people and industries now are starting to appreciate that a bit more and we can see that slowly in Hollywood. Like look at Hollywood and, and what we see on the big screens now and obviously in corporate Australia and very slowly now in, in politics with the latest election results. But um, I think it's as an individual, like what you can do and I think leveraging off your identity is actually something that's going to enrich your position, but also making sure that if you do get there, you know, as the first Asian Australian and whatever you do is that you really support others coming after you who really look up to you and also want to be able to get to where you are and achieve the things that you have achieved. Yeah, absolutely. I'm curious though, how did your family react to, you know, your ambitions as to be a politician and like your kind of foray into politics? Was that something that they were quite supportive about? I imagine so, but I just feel like, I mean, my you know, family, for instance, I just feel like there's so 
there's not much engagement with Australian politics. I just feel like the civic engagement. I mean, I think for one thing, language barriers are a huge part of it, but I just don't know if there is as much enthusiasm for it. And I don't think they've ever kind of, you know, encouraged politics or kind of, it's not something that we discuss at home, right? So I'm curious as to kind of how that was received in your own personal family and community. Well, like a lot of Asian families, you know, growing up, it was, do you want to be a doctor? Do you want to be a lawyer? Do you want to do these, you know, very limited um, career pathways? Um, But my family have always been very supportive. So whatever it is that, you know, I wanted to pursue, they will back me 100%. I think I'm I'm very lucky in that sense. And, you know, not every Asian kid's going to be a doctor or a lawyer. And I think parents are figuring that out too um, and not putting (laughs) as much pressure. And, you know, we're proving that there are other career paths that we can be just as successful (laughs) in. And I think, you know, we know where our parents are coming from. They just want us to have a really good education. They want us to be successful um, and to be comfortable in life, right? So that's where they're coming from. And I think, a lot of people don't see politics as a viable career option because it's so competitive. Um, you know, there's only one member for each electorate or area. So it, it's not easy. And I would say too, I mean, I, I don't see myself as a career politician. I see politics as another way to serve the community. So I think even if you don't make it in politics, I don't think that's the end of the world. Um, and there's so many other ways in which you can, can serve um, if that's what you're truly there for. But unfortunately, you know, not everyone's there for that reason. And, uh, you know, there are certain, uh, I guess, power because in politics, and, and I think this is what people are more aware of now, like a lot of people who don't care about politics, like a lot of friends of mine are like, Ugh, you know, who cares? You know, it's going to be the same old people there anyway. There's going to be this political elitist class that are going to rule this country. But really, they're making decisions. Politicians are making decisions that impact on our everyday lives. Um, and it's so important that, you know, the decisions they make need to be for the betterment of society and to better and improve people's lives. Um, so until you're impacted by politics and by the policies, I think we're just very lucky that we live in a democracy in rather safe country um but when you look abroad and look at you know what's happening now in the u.s like the senate or politicians they can't even pass laws to curb gun violence and you see that and here we're just like that's just ridiculous and as unpopular or popular as John Howard and me, I guess, you know, they thought Cool Young, they bring out John Howard, they might <laughs> sway some votes. But one of the best things he did was gun control in this country. And yeah, now for 100%. us, we 100%. just, yeah. we, we don't even think twice about it. Like it bewilders us to think that people can go around carrying guns, particularly in schools. Um, but then the US is completely different reality. Um, and so, you know, it's so important, the decisions that our politicians yeah. make for our lives um, and to understand that, to acknowledge that and to see why it's so important and why our vote really matters in terms of who we choose to represent us. Um, and I think in terms of representation, you know, we talk about why it's so important, not just for representation's sake, but because people with different lived experiences bring so much of, you know, their own personal life to the table and that informs, you know, the the empathy behind these decisions that they make. And I, I always use COVID as an example because I, I live in Southwest Sydney. I mean, you guys had it really bad in Melbourne, um, but in Southwest Sydney, we were one of the suburbs that were in strict lockdown. And it was because I feel that the politicians just could not understand and could not empathise. Like we were being punished and it really felt like we were being punished because the rates were really high. But that's because a lot of people work in manufacturing jobs. They, they can't work from home yeah. in a lot of jobs. Like my partner works yeah. in construction. He can't work from home. So he had to leave the house every day. And then a lot of people, you know, we live in extended families with mum, dad and grandparents. And so if one person gets infected, everybody gets infected in the household. But then the politicians or decision makers were just like well you guys aren't doing the right thing we're gonna put harsh lockdown laws for you guys and so it was really hard to see like they took down basketball rings at the local park here and then you see people in like the northern beaches going out to the beach every day and kids can't even play basketball for one hour of you know exercise that we got a day so it's really important I, I think understanding the impact that politics has on everyday life yeah, absolutely. 
I mean, last question um, that, you know, I think actually blends quite well to, you know, your, I guess, narrative on, you know, having the importance of, you know, our vote and, you know, the really, I guess, community-led impact that really does make a difference in our societies. You know, what are your hopes for the future of Australian politics and civic engagement? Like, do you think this recent election has really sparked that optimism? I mean, I guess, you know, <laughs> you are a Labour Party member, which is a great thing, but I think generally, you know, what's your kind of take on where Australian politics is heading? Yeah, I mean, I am really optimistic. I think there's people are just feeling a little bit more excited about the future. And I think it's really telling that, um, like, what I've got most excited about was when now the Prime Minister, um, Albanese, one of his first commitments in his speech was the Uluru Statement from the Heart. And this is something that I'm personally very passionate about because in my community um, that I work closely with and in a lot of the migrant communities, and I, I touched on this earlier where, you know, a lot of my communities feel like we aren't true Australians, so we don't have a right or a say on certain issues. And I think the issues of the issue of you know, First Nations and the plight of First Nations Australian is something that we all need to engage and understand in terms of the history of this country that, you know, the land was stolen and sovereignty was never ceded. And we are all, you know, as migrants and the children of immigrants to this country, the inadvertent beneficiaries of stolen land, essentially. But I just feel like there's a, we need to be able to show greater solidarity with our First Nations people in this country. Um, but like I said, like within my community, they feel like, you know, that's like a white person's issue. Like that's not our problem. Um, and we don't have a right to engage with that because we weren't the colonisers. But I think as a country to to really move forward, because I, I see, you know, their plight is very similar to a lot of migrant communities who came to Australia as refugees. Like they were displaced, but displaced in their own country. So I have a lot of hope for the future for this country. But if there's one thing, I think how migrant communities can better engage and, you know, show solidarity and walk together with our First Nations community, because I think once we're able to reconcile and reconciliation week just ended, but once we are able to reconcile with our past and not just acknowledge past atrocities, but move forward and we're one of the only, I think, Commonwealth countries that doesn't even have a treaty with our First Nations people. Like I, I think when you, you look at, you know, the treatment, obviously, the genocide and the history, and I know growing up in school, like it was just such a small part of what we learn. Um, and it's always, you know, learning about the dreaming and the, you know, nice fluffy stuff, but not actually the truth. Um, and so I think as a, a, a nation, once we're able to reconcile with that, then we're able to move forward into a, a much brighter future for all Australians. And that means everyone that has come to this country um, you know, subsequently as migrants, because our country is, you know, unless you're Indigenous or Aboriginal or for, uh, Torres Strait Islander, everyone's a migrant to this country. But there seems to be just, you know, different um there are classes of like citizenship and I still feel like as a country as a whole, um, you know, white Australians are more privileged and our minority communities are often marginalised. Um, so that's my hope for the future and I think the first step towards that is greater solidarity between migrant communities and all Australians really with our First Nations community. And I, I think, yeah, we, we'd be able, once we're able to, to get through that and I'm confident that this government will because they've already made a commitment to that and I think even at the first press conference where they had the the flags at the back the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander flags like that was a really powerful simple yet powerful message to all Australians that you know we're going to do the right thing so yeah that's that's my personal hope but also that moving forward particularly with our generation I don't know if you guys are aware there was a study done I think during the pandemic that showed that young people second generation people from cold communities are the most civically engaged and I think that's a really interesting thing to see that you know political engagement civic engagement particularly from young people of color is um, quite high and it's increasing and I think that you know when we're able to have that level of 
civic engagement. That's how we're going to to change our our country, not only you know from the highest echelons of power in politics, but also from communities as well. And I think like change needs to happen at all levels. And I'm really a strong believer in that grassroots community movement. So I think that's really important uh, because you know these people are going to be future leaders and they're going to you know push for change at all levels of power across politics, across other industries. So yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot to be hopeful for in the future and a change in government and particularly with this current government and the start. Like there, there's got to be lots of challenges along the way, but I think it's been a, a really good start and I'm very optimistic about uh, the future of Australia. Oh, I love that so much. And I think that's a really lovely and hopeful note to end on. I mean, if there wasn't anything else, Jeff. Uh, well, the only question I've had is, have you met Albo? Yes, I have. I have met Albo. Oh, yes. What's he like? Oh, he's a nice man. Before Christina Keneally was parachuted in, I actually held a fundraiser for the seat. The big part of running in politics is also your ability to fundraise because running political campaigns, like you said, Josh Frydenberg spent millions of dollars, his face was plastered everywhere, paying young kids to walk around with his face um, (laughs) on their backs. Um, I saw pictures of that. I thought that was... Quite it entertaining. So they look so sad. Yeah, it is really weird. I mean, it's interesting because you think, you know, is that going to really win you votes? Uh, but it is. So. It's been proven to be effective. <laughs> like you know, to see uh, faces, familiar faces. Um, <laughs> but yes, I have. I have met Albo. There's a photo of me in Albo. I think on social media that's been circulated. But I have met him, and I actually, I'm on the board of a local community organisation in his electorate. So he, I work in his electorate in the inner west of Sydney, and so I, I do come across him quite often. Yeah, excellent. I just watched um funny TikTok of him. He was like in the bike with someone, and then just like riding around the park somewhere, and the guy's just like roasting him, and he just like. He can take he can take a roast. And it's just like, you know, he, he seems like a nice guy. <laughs> I wanted, yeah. to hear it. wanted to hear it firsthand, obviously. I'm never I think I think he is I think he is a, a genuine um and a decent person. Yeah. 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 Brilliant. I mean that the standards are that low, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic. Yeah, but it, it is hard to, I mean, regardless of who you are as an individual, and when you're in the public eye, like you're highly scrutinized, right? And you're not gonna have everyone that likes you. Like that's just impossible. Yeah. And that that's something, you know, yeah. that probably turns people off too. Like, you yeah. know, living a very public life. Um, could be quite difficult. Like yeah. they'll be trolling for your Facebook, yeah. uh, finding everything, any dirt on you. That yeah. actually happened to me um, during this whole experience. There are people trying to dig dirt. Yeah, they'll find your like Facebook yeah. statuses from when you were 12. Oh, my like, God. <laughs> wow. That was With nice. my yeah, friends, <laughs> just lots of questions. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, lucky I have no skeleton in my, skeletons in my closet. But there, there was like a hit piece um, that people were just like, this is ridiculous. But they, they were trying to say that I'm also a parachuter because I actually grew up. So I was born in Adelaide. Mm. So I, I wasn't born in the local area in Fowler. And then I um, had to live like 10 kilometers down the road, pretty much down the highway. Um, but I lived like the beginning of my life outside of the electorate. And then they were using that against me to say, oh, she's also a parachute. Which was ridiculous. You can't even compare. But that was like the one thing about Albo, though, was he did say that Christina Keneally is also a successful migrant story, which I think a lot of people found a little bit insulting to migrants who came from, you know, war-torn countries and whatnot. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, it's not great. Anyways, if there wasn't anything else too, this has been genuinely such an amazing conversation. I feel like I've learned so much and I feel like I've just grown so much more optimistic about Australian politics. And I think it's so nice to hear from someone who actually has been part of it and is part of it, um, you know, as opposed to reading about it as like a third person. So thank you so much for providing us with such wonderful insights into this whole process and, you know, your work and your continued advocacy for your community. And it's been an absolute pleasure. And we thank you so much again. Thank you. I had a lot of fun. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much, too. And uh, if you enjoyed that episode, make sure to give us five stars wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you in the next one.